0: hello and welcome to something for the soul the leadership podcast with a twist as founders and ceos of social enterprises we've all had something that we've had to dig deep into our soul to get through it turns out that if we've done the work to overcome that something then we might have a story to tell that could help someone else on this podcast you will hear from leaders across the globe openly talking about their challenges and sharing how they made it to the other side. I'm your host, Shonju Paul, founder of the education charity Rise, and every month I will invite a new guest to share something for the soul. My guest today is Natasha Porter, founder and CEO of Unlocked Graduates, a groundbreaking leadership programme which hires top graduates and career changers to work as prison officers for two years. Since its inception in 2016, Unlock graduates has recruited over 750 graduates to be prison officers, working with over 20,000 prisoners across the United Kingdom. Natasha was born in London to parents who emigrated from Australia in the 1970s. She studied English at the University of Warwick before completing the Teach First graduate program. Natasha went on to join the founding team at the new charter-style school in London called King Solomon Academy, as head of Key Stage 4 and upper school. With an eye on education policy, she moved to a policy exchange think tank and the Department of Education. During her policy work, Natasha developed the concept for unlocked graduates, working with Dame Sally Coates on her government-commissioned review into prison education. Natasha is an advisor to the Children's Commissioner for England and a charity trustee at Impetus Private Equity Foundation and Get Further. She also sits on the Grants and Evaluation Committee at the Youth Endowment Fund and the Building Futures Advisory Board at Prison Reform Trust. In 2022, Natasha was awarded an OBE, Order of the British Empire, for services to His Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. Welcome to Something for the Soul, Natasha. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so
1: much for having me um, on this. Very exciting.
0: I would particularly say, because you are a fellow Teach First ambassador from the 06 cohort, this really means something to me to be connecting with you today. And I want to start with asking you, what made you do the Teach First programme and start your career as a teacher? Oh,
1: I'm a bit of a planner. And I was thinking that I needed to sort out a job for after university. So I wanted to do something creative. I used to work in like big corporate banks in my holidays at university. And it, it wasn't the environment I wanted to go into. I was like really adamant. I didn't want to just make rich people richer. You know, I think we spend many hours of our week working. And I wanted to use those to try and make the world a bit better. And I also have and and felt it very much at Peer Street University, a deep unease with people who are lacking opportunity. So people living in extreme poverty, and I'd done work in various kind of volunteering organisations through university, and I felt like if I could do something with my job where I was trying to make the world a bit better, even if it was in a very tiny corner of the world, then I might be able to like not feel overwhelmed by some of the really awful things that were happening in the world. I never wanted to be a teacher, and I saw the word teach and thought, that's absolutely not for me. But they had a list of supporters, and on that list, there were third sector organisations and creative organisations that I knew I probably would want to work for later in my career. So for me, it was very much, I thought teaching would be fun for a year or two, it would never be my career. And it will give me access to these organisations, which are the kind of place where I want a career. And actually, my parents, when they arrived in the 1970s, had worked in a school in East London with very high levels of deprivation. They were not excited about me becoming a teacher. And it was very much that it's not becoming a teacher. It's a leadership development programme with all of these career opportunities. Also, most other things felt like they were closing down opportunities, like you'd end up on a track to accountancy or on a track to Something And what I loved about Teach First was you were going to finish the two years with loads more opportunities.
0: When the Teach First programme came along, it really was groundbreaking, right? It was people that wouldn't ordinarily go into teaching, let alone in a city, deprived communities, but a chance to develop as a leader for two years. And I think we have to talk about the fact that it really was Brett Wigdawts and that leadership team, members like Dame Julia Cleverdon who were instrumental in helping us fall in love with the programme. And I would say that I fell in love with Teach First. And I think it's safe to say that not everyone does. And it's not for everyone. But if in some way you're looking for what exactly you articulated, which was kind of career progression, great leadership opportunities and development opportunities, in the places where it matters most, well, actually, then the programme is for you. And as you'll know, Teach Fair celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. and We all came together at Totteridge Academy, where we have another fellow O6 ambassador, Chris Fairburn, leading, doing incredible things with that school. What I loved about also the WhatsApp group that we had and a bit of banter, but it was someone that said they wake up in the morning and they're still sort of in the mirror. They're kind of chanting, I am the tiger. I just feel like there was just such an amazing vibe for all of us, particularly in the O6 cohort.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I fell in love with the mission, I think, more towards, as I went through the programme, I like I didn't quite know what I'd signed up for for quite a long time. But there's moments in teaching which remain some of the best moments in my life. I mean, I, I just adored teaching, teaching English literature, teaching kids. What's been interesting is, like, through your career how important that cohort were that we trained with, how important that journey was. But at the time, it was survival and it was it was, it was, was a real mix of things, but it was an incredible two years. And, and I think what was interesting was towards the end of the two years, there definitely felt like a pressure to do something else. Like, you've done your two years, what are you doing next? I had a coach at the time and she said to me, so you love your job? Yeah, yeah, I do. I really enjoy it pays you well enough. Yeah, yeah, you know, I can pay the bills. And you can see progression. Yeah, there's stuff I want to do. She was like, So why are you thinking about leaving? I was like, oh yeah. Why am I thinking about leaving? And then for me I stayed um for years afterwards because it was just such a great job actually, but not one I would ever have selected or gone into if it weren't for Teach First.
0: Yeah, I think I've even heard you say that you never thought teaching or education would be a career for you. You've talked a little bit about what might have changed that, the experiences you had on the Teach First programme, falling in love with teaching, warts and all. But what led you to then, I guess, quite a pivotal role for you was moving on to being a founding team member of King Solomon Academy. What was important to you about taking on that role and how was it?
1: I knew Max Heimendorf, who was the founding head of KSA, because we'd done a summer project together at Teach First. I went to a Teach First something or other, and there was a man there who was talking about the KIT schools in America. It's a charter school, knowledge is power program set up by two Teach for America alum. And every single child who went to their school was offered a place at a four-year college program in the US. So it's the equivalent of some of our most competitive academic universities. Their kids were in lots of ways similar to the kids I was teaching, Actually, in lots of ways worse, because they didn't have the social security system. They didn't have the NHS. They didn't have the benefit system we have here. And yet every single child was getting amazing grades. And at my school, we were somewhere just under 30% getting 5A star to were We were below the kind of national benchmark. But the narrative was that it was because kids like these with these kind of backgrounds just can't get their GCSEs. I didn't realise until I was sat listening to that man, but I'd kind of started to believe that. I mean, it probably came from a place of privilege in some ways, but I think I think it came from a place of like, of deep care. You know, when, when my colleagues spoke about it, it was like, these are children where there isn't enough money to eat breakfast. They've got loads going on at home. Often, you know, maybe there isn't a parent around at home because of the hours they're having to work to keep food on the table. It was like a recognition of what poverty does to your life and a recognition of what kind of, socioeconomic disadvantage does to your life as a child. But within that, there was a lowering of expectations of what these children could achieve. And when I heard that man from KIP, I I really felt like I was failing the children I was teaching because I had kind of accepted that they weren't gonna be able to read and write as well as me and my peers. And I grew up just down the road. You know, my parents had emigrated as well, but my dad had been fortunate enough to build an organization, a company that meant they could pay for me to go to private school. I'd been to lots of schools so I used to be quite naughty and get expelled from them, but I had got a good education. And these children, I was not holding to those standards. And it really transformed everything for me. And actually what Max was starting at King Solomon Academy and what I ended up joining was a chance to redefine what people believe is possible from children in the most socioeconomically disadvantaged communities, really to prove that the problem is not the children. Like, it is not that these children can't learn and can't succeed. The problem is a system which has limitations on what they believe that child can can learn and achieve I knew that I wanted to give it everything and so I made a really conscious decision that I want to be part of building a school that gets the kind of outcomes which show that these children can achieve just as well as the children in a private school given the right support and care and I know that's going to be a huge amount of work but I'm prepared to give up five years like I'm not going to have Children, I'm not gonna have a husband, I'm and I really thought that was an explicit choice I had to make, but I was like, five years of my life I'm gonna give to try and radically shift what this country believes is possible for these children. My schooling had also been, I moved around a lot, I've really struggled with mainstream school, like it wasn't suitable for me. And the idea of being part of system change so that people believe all children can achieve. I think was also speaking to that part of me that like responded to, so well to that when I was a kid. So it was a lot of things but it was god it was bloody exciting to be part of.
0: There are so many things that you've just expressed that I think are very humbling, things about deep care, about the fact that we should see people as limitless, that there should be a sense of possibility in everyone, young people obviously. This I think translates to the work that you're doing now with Unlock graduates. It's about believing in better for everyone, regardless of where they've come from, what their past experiences are, who they've been. It's about what is the, the chance for them moving forward? How can we radically change and shift perspectives on things that need to, in order to make the change in our lifetime that we wanna see across disadvantaged, Within obviously that's where you started in schools, but now in prisons. And it is quite remarkable what you're doing. So tell us more about Unlock graduates. Well, and I, I think the key
1: word you use there is change. Because of my life experiences, and I guess some things I've been really fortunate to witness, is that human beings, I think, have a remarkable, some might say miraculous capacity to change. I think people can be at the end of the road, everyone can have given up on them, they kind of lost everything and it can be really hard to look at someone in that place and see their potential and yet they can radically change everything and you know I've been fortunate to see people in that situation completely rebuild their lives in actually a relatively short amount of time and the thing which I'm really interested in and excited by is the capacity that humans have with the support of other humans to do that transformational work so prison is absolutely that for me. Having that belief in human capacity to change, and part of that is being realistic about those challenges and being realistic about where people lack perhaps the privilege and the access to be able to be able to make those changes. But one human being helping another, I really believe, is, is without parallel. And I think what was incredible as part of the Coates review when we started looking at education in prisons was that in a prison, and that can be a teacher... But actually, lots of prisoners never go to a classroom because they had negative experiences of school or didn't really attend school much from a young age. They think it's not for them. They've kind of opted out. And for them, these transformational relationships happen with other prisoners often, you know, with another prisoner convincing them that they can have a better life or make some really radical changes. But it happens with prison officers. Like things have gone pretty badly wrong if you've ended up in prison. I think for any of us, the idea of being in prison is pretty bleak. And and therefore, what does that transformational change look like and how do you systematize that and how do you build a system where you've got the greatest potential of that transformational change happening? For me, that is about that prison officer role. You know, those of us who work in the justice system, we have a responsibility to ask ourselves, am I recognizing the capacity this person has to change and what am I doing to
0: support that? What I would like us to do is talk about something that you want to bring to the podcast today that you have found challenging, that you have worked through. Tell us about what the situation was and then let's talk about the work that you did to get through it.
1: Yeah, so I thought really long and hard about this because I wanted it to be a real challenge that I found really difficult to overcome there's lots of challenges which are difficult to overcome and then you never think about them again, but it's something which had kind of changed how I lead and changed me as, as a leader. What I wanted to talk about is something that's quite personal, but it was about when in my fourth year, maybe of senior leadership, I experienced a burnout. And that meant for a period of time, I wondered if I would be able to continue doing the work that I was doing. And I had to take some time off. And I had to do some really deep reflections about how I was approaching work and how I was approaching leadership. And I think it's transformed how I operate as a leader. And I think it guides a lot of my life as a leader today.
0: I kind of want to start with, if it's OK with you, to talk about what that actually looked like in terms of we use this term burnout. Different people will have different perspectives of burnout. There's probably, you know, a physical element of actual health and exhaustion, maybe some physical symptoms as well. There's this mental element of disconnection, of really struggling, and, you know, the whole mental health piece. But I think it would be really helpful if you're able to tell us a little bit about what does burnout mean for you?
1: I think for me it manifested as one Saturday going from work to my dad's house to have pancakes with him, which was something that I used to do when I had a lot on to try and give me some space, I guess. And when I got there, I just started crying and I could not stop. And I cried and I cried and I cried. I didn't feel particularly upset, but I just thought, what is this? And actually, I woke up the next morning and it was still there. And I woke up the next morning and it was still there. And I just couldn't stop crying and just feeling completely overwhelmed, I couldn't go to work because I was crying. I just couldn't kind of get my head in the right space. It was a real alarm bell that I needed to change some stuff. And I was desperate not to leave the work that I was doing. But actually all cards needed to be on the table during that period. And until I got to a stage where all cards were on the table, I think I continued to feel really overwhelmed. The best question someone asked me through all of that, right in the really kind of worst few days at the beginning, was like, what do you need? And that gave me the space to realise I just needed a bit of space to work stuff out and to reset. And I think it was that process of working stuff out and resetting. I didn't take sick days. I'm not someone who would ever have had that happen it really showed me that I'd got into some really unhealthy patterns in my relationship with work, which I needed to change.
0: So you talk about unhealthy, was it decision-making? Was it too many different roles? Was it saying yes to too many things? What, in your opinion, led to that situation? What was going on for you before that?
1: I think work became the wrong size. And I don't mean hours worked. I don't mean, you know, seniority of role. I mean, work became too big for my self-esteem. So I think I was getting too much of my self-esteem from my job, from my working self, and not enough from other things. And I started to make bad decisions around my work because too much of my self-esteem was tied up in my job title. And for me, like as someone who can be both needy and can like have quite low self-esteem while also having quite a big ego, it's really important To not get too caught up in like the praise and flattery that can sometimes come with leadership. So I think firstly that side of it, and realizing that I am more than just my work, and that I get worth from more than just my work. And I think not seeing my friends enough, not seeing my family enough, meant too much of me was caught up in work. I think secondly, it's like getting a fix through work. So. When things aren't going well or when you feel unsure about something, going to work to try and fix you. And I think I kind of accidentally work had just been the thing that I did when I wasn't feeling great. Whereas actually, when I'm not feeling great, I need to do things that really look after me. Instead, I was, I think, going to work to look after me. And again, it's that thing about work not being right sized. I think the more I felt like I was in this cycle, the more jobs I took on. And in the end, it was just manic. And no one was asking me to do it. And I was doing it because of my relationship with work. And and I think a lot of it comes from as a new leader, feeling insecure, wanting to, you know, when you find something you're good at, you want to do more and more of it. And getting that self-esteem from it took me a little while to get there. But with hindsight, I think those were the cycles I'd fallen into. And those were the things that I, after that, learned to be incredibly disciplined with. And as a result, I think, have managed to stay really healthy through some incredibly stressful senior leadership situations. Since, How did
0: you figure out for yourself what wasn't working? How did you figure out what was the change that you needed to make? And of course, an extension of that is then, how did you actually go about making those changes?
1: So I had done a lot of work on myself in the years preceding that, which I think probably fast-tracked some of those realisations and meant I had a really good network that I could go to on this stuff I didn't have to rebuild it from scratch and I think that showed me how important that work had been and that actually I needed to not take that for granted like those networks need investing in, they need maintaining it was just before the summer holidays actually so I took I had six weeks over the summer in which to really reflect on this and I went and visited my sister in Australia who just given birth met my little nephew, which is quite a good kind of quiet, calm space to reflect and went and visited some friends in other countries and, and just tried to take some time, really get away from it and, and process. I did know how to look after myself. I think I just allowed myself to get lost in a job that I loved and I was really good at, but it had become too big in my life. So it was that right sizing thing. How do you right size things? So I was much more deliberate with balancing and actually Having face-to-face time with people releases hormones that relieve stress. It's a good thing to have in your life. I reintroduced running, so I, I started exercising regularly. I now have this thing where actually I'm very hypersensitive emotionally often, and I get an anxiety in my tummy. And when I get an anxiety in my tummy, like it's it's not an indication I should work more it's a really good indication that I need to like prioritise that. So I have a date night once a week with my husband. And if I've got kind of the jitters or you know I've got that uneasy feeling on my tummy, then I will use that. We will go somewhere and just chat. And often we live in London. We'll go somewhere two hours away from our house. We'll walk home. We'll talk it through. And that really helps. I also, most evenings, I make sure I'm home. We have supper together as a family, always. I put the kids to bed every night. My husband and I take a child each. And then two hours where I just try to, if I need to work, I'll work. But most nights I'll use those hours to switch off. And um, there's some things for me that, so jigsaw puzzles really help me switch off. I learned actually while I was pregnant and waiting for the baby to arrive. Trashy books really help me switch off. There's long hot baths with a bit of scrolling can help me really switch off. So I try and have supper with friends once a month in the evening and after work, like I I make sure I build those things into my life. I try and keep my weekends pretty sacred. So I try to never work weekends. And what does that look like as a leader? It looks like delegating to a team, which frankly makes people happier because people like to own their own work. It looks like having a great team around me. It looks like doing a few things really well. Something that's really helped me is having a very clear strategy so that I don't try and solve every problem I ever see. But I'm really clear on like, what are the main focuses of work? And I think just constantly right-sizing, like Unlocked is, is going very well because I have an amazing team around me, because I've got an amazing board, because I have loads of support. You know, there's there's people doing amazing, much more amazing things with their lives. And and I think, you know, when I see friends of mine who are bringing up many, many children as a single mum, I think that's a, a really difficult thing to do and something that I would, you know, probably do terribly at and... I think, you know, when you see people in in prison rebuilding their lives, you think that is really impressive. So I think like right-sizing work and being proud of being like a good mum or a good partner rather than trying to get all self-esteem from work has been really important. And I think the final thing, which I just re-remembered quite recently, and I have to remind myself of, is deciding to be happy, deciding in the morning, this is going to be a good day. And when things go wrong, thinking, oh, you know... (laughs) Like, this is going to be a good day. I'm not going to let that define my day. Like, redefining, you know, of course, that isn't always possible. Of course, there's times when awful things happen. But often I find, like, I can choose to look at things and try and be grateful and try and be positive. So those are some of the things that I have learned that work for me really well.
0: That is super helpful. I think if I was trying to summarise, I'd say there's obviously the, the last thing you talked about, which is like the mindset piece. And there's a lot of that. Like I've got a five minute journal where it's like in the morning you wake up, you might you know, write down what your daily affirmation is. And some of that stuff, I think years ago, I might have thought, why on earth would I do that? But actually spending even just five minutes getting into the right mindset can do wonders for the day. Even if there is going to be a crisis on your hands at some point you've already kind of set yourself up a little bit more positive, a little bit higher state to kind of work through that. The second thing is around right sizing. I like it, I think, is my maths background. So I'm thinking numerics here. And I also know, Natasha, you are meticulous in almost how you would structure, I think, the 168 hours that we have in a week. And I think being more mindful of that and where you're spending your time seems absolutely critical and crucial. And what you've talked about there is really helpful. And then actually, I'd say the third thing was around almost like a gut feel. How do you do that sense check now? You have so many activities that you're involved in because of your passion for addressing educational disadvantage. You know, you still have a role as an advisor, a role as a trustee, a role as a consultant, a role as a speaker. That is a lot of responsibility in each of those areas. What helps you on a day-to-day basis?
1: Like you say, I'm, I'm a meticulous planner. So I also, I try and be very deliberate. I think the first thing is just like not falling into a trap of negative self-thought. Like when you leave a room and you think, oh, I can't believe I said that. Like very quickly forcing yourself out of that into like, you were great. It was fine. It was said, you know, not, not that you don't self-reflect. But again, for me, if I come out of a room and I'm thinking that and that's happening quite a bit, that's normally an indication for me that I need to be looking after myself a bit better. Like what's my canary in the mind? For me, it's having... A bit of a funny feeling in my tummy, like a bit of anxiety. It's thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you said that. Everyone would have thought that was really stupid. Or You know, it's that negative self-talk. And it's probably also that fear that things are going to go, like, catastrophically wrong. And actually, what's the worst that can happen? That's the other thing about having a life which is rich and full and not allowing it to be just one thing is there's still great things in my life. It's okay if it, you know, if it all goes wrong, brilliant. You can rebuild and it'll be fine. But that kind of catastrophizing, but all of those normally happen when I'm not looking after myself very well. I'm like defining myself through much to work. I'm. It's it's often a kind of, like I say, that kind of right-sizing activity that needs to take place. And that canary in the mine metaphor, I think, is like I feel things quite acutely. And in one way, that's a real blessing, actually, because very early on, I can feel when things aren't right. And the reason this challenge was so transformative with me was I think I ignored it. And I worked through it and I tried to not address it. And the end result was it just forced me to stop and reflect on it in the end. And what I've learned is I've got to look after myself. I've got to keep myself healthy through all of this or everything else will be lost.
0: Thank you so much, Natasha. This has been such an illuminating, such a powerful conversation with you. Thank you so much for going into that place where you have been open and honest and shared a very personal thing with us. I think that the chances are that everyone has experienced some form of burnout and it looks and feels different to everyone, but actually, you talking it through and the way that you worked on it, managed it, managed things that are happening in your life even today to get back to a place where actually you can maybe say that I am acutely aware if there is any risk of a burnout is so meaningful and so thank you so so much for coming on Sign for the Soul.
1: Thanks for inviting me Shonji, lovely to see you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Something for the Soul. If you enjoyed it, then I would be so grateful if you could rate it and leave a review. It will help new listeners to find the podcast and build this movement of leaders leaning into vulnerability as a superpower. Remember to press the follow button to get the next episode of Something for the Soul as soon as it's published on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Acast, or whichever platform you're listening on. Bye for now.